Welcome to A Pod Too Far, where we relive 1980s Sunday afternoons spent watching old war movies. A happier time before CGI. A time when, if you wanted to show a squadron of Spitfires, you simply had to film the three planes you had from several different angles. Today it's 1940, and we're strapping on our flying helmets and taking to the skies as we prepare to so bear ourselves that, if this podcast lasts for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest episode. That's right, it's the Battle of Britain. I'm Rob Hutton, and I've realised that if I want to defend this podcast from the Nazi horde, I'm going to have to tell the Prime Minister he can't send any more episodes to France. As a result of a desperate shortage of co-hosts, I've been forced to recruit a man who definitely didn't go to the right school. Hello, Duncan Weldon. Hello, Rob. And joining us from a distant airfield where he's got some novel ideas about forming a big wing is the historian and podcast legend, James Holland. Hello, James. Hello, James. How are you? Now, James, we asked you to pick a film and you picked The Battle of Britain. Why? I just love it because I absolutely love it. I never get bored of watching it. It's just a terrific film. And actually, I mean, you're, you're, you're right that if you're Christopher Nolan, that is the best you can do in Dunkirk is produce three Spitfires. But in 1968, when they're filming the Battle of Britain, you've got hundreds of them. I mean, they're all still breaking down like mad. Um, and they're having to kind of sort of, you know, take parts out of pool and put them into Peter. But 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 there are a lot of planes swirling around. Um, and also Heinkels and Messerschmitts, although obviously post-war Spanish-built Bouchons with with Merlin engines rather than the real thing. But there's a lot of aircraft. They're real aircraft. And do you know what? They're still using the outtakes of that film in other movies. Yes, I mean uh, this is this is one of the things I when I was doing the research, Duncan. Is you you get a, you start getting a list of all of the other films that that immediately start using bits yeah, yeah, of bits of Battle yeah. of Britain footage. I I know that you like a, um, a a a metric, Duncan. At the time of filming, the producer was controlling the sixth largest air force in the world. Fantastic, apparently. <laughs> and this this is during the Cold War as well. So yeah, yeah. you know you sort of you, the largest air forces were the USSR, yeah. the USA. They a time of serious air force. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't yes. fancy, you know, I, much as I love a Spitfire, I don't fancy their chances against even a late 60s MiG, to be honest. <laughs> uh, well, that... you know, you say that, but... <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything they couldn't do? It's, 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 a fly a long distance. <laughs> <laughs> Battle of Britain is released in 1969. That's 29 years after the event. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, it, I mean, it's like, effectively, it's like looking back at 1994 now i the only 1994 memorable thing i can find is the south african election uh, which is the first sort of free election that they had it, it, it i mean it's sort of a long time ago and also i obviously for a whole load of the people who were watching it who were sort of in their 50s it's also quite recent yeah uh, it, it's a film which feels very close to the war well, not least because it had lots of advisors on it who were actually in it, um, oh, and, and yeah. even even the air chief marshals, uh, um, Lord Dowding, turned up yes. uh, at one point in his wheelchair, and everyone fated him. But but you know, Bob Stanford Tuck and Douglas Bader and and um, and and um, Adolf Galland, who you know once been trying to sort of shoot each other out of the sky, were now kind of absolute besties um, and, and panning around and having a lovely time. Yeah, it, it it costs three and a half million, or no, no, its budget is supposed to be three and a half million, but there's a terrible summer in 1968 when they're filming it, so it ends up costing uh, 13 million dollars, which is for scale, that's about 100 million dollars now. Which, for contrast, Ant Man three cost 200 million dollars. 
So this is sort of and, half... And Man Freehead didn't, have, didn't have any size of Air Force. No! <laughs> <laughs> Not a single no. Spitfire in Ant-Man 3. Very good point. <laughs> the only thing about it is it, feel, it feels much earlier than a 1969 film. It sort of feels like it, it sits with sort of Reach for the Sky and The Way to the Stars and all of... It, it, it sits in that tradition. If you actually look at, look at what the war films that are being made at the same time. This is made two years after The Dirty Dozen. Um, it's five years after 633 Squadron. It's the year after Where Eagles Dare. I mean, you, you're putting it in a sort of 1950s post-war movie category. I mean, I, I, this feels to me like a film almost made during the war itself. You know, it, 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 it's, a cele- it's, a, it's a telling of history. It's a celebration of the RAF's role in the Battle of Britain. I think is a complete ape of is a complete ape of the longest day. It's sort of let's do a big sweep history piece. Let's mm. make it sort of vaguely accurate historically, and let's stuff it full of the greatest stars of British <laughs> cinema. Uh, um, you know, from 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 Ralph Richardson to to Laurence Olivier to Christopher Plummer and Robert Shaw. Uh, and a few newbies coming up through the ranks of Susanna York, and 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 let's let's add in lots of Spitfires, and it's kind of what's not to like. And and the, the answer is there's absolutely nothing not to like about it. It's it's completely <laughs> brilliant from start to finish. But but it's very much in that tradition, and and you can see exactly where they've got it from. You know, um, the longest day is obviously an American movie, and although they have lots of Brits in it, it is it, it is America centric, I think. But it's it's going for that same principle, of having the all star cast, mm. you know, and, and everyone and everyone wanting to be in it because it's a sort of seen as a kind of a big blockbuster and a prestige project. And I don't know, I, you know, you, the, the things about those other films is they are single mission films. They're they're kind of you know a, a particular moment, whereas this is a big sweep film. So it's 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 doing a different thing. It's it's not six three three squadron. It's not one single mission to mm. to Norway or whatever. You know, it, it's it's not Rare Eagles Dare where you've got to sort of try and get the good guy, bad guy, which one is he out of a schloss um movie and escape again. It's 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 got a different a different feel to it. And I think part of its part of its charm is it's obviously it's in Technicolor. It has got these incredible aerial sequences where you feel, even to this day, that the, the the money hasn't been spared, and, mm. and now that you've given us this insight to the budget, we know that to be true. And nothing like this had ever been seen before. If you compare the aerial footage of this to Six Three Three Squadron, which looks unbelievably model esque and wooden, mm. the only thing that looks vaguely unconvincing is the Stuka dive bombing attack on on the radar station. The only reason they've they've made models rather than the real things is because there weren't any by 1968 when they're filming it. But to all other tense purposes, it's absolutely bang on. And the, and the all-star cast are incredibly well done. And, 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 you know, everyone is completely brilliant in it, from Robert Shaw to Christopher Plummer to Ian McShane to, very briefly, um, Laurence Olivier. I mean, you know, they're, 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 it's all it's pitch perfect. Full to all, even even the fat Herman who plays plays Goering. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant when he looks through his his binoculars and some bright sort of cocky Luftwaffe type sort of goes, "Yes, the British radar," and everyone sort of goes <laughs> like this. You know, it's so it's so old fashioned and quaint. I mean, it will seem not that out of the, you know, it will seem not that out of action. It's it's completely brilliant. 
I mean, you say what's not to like, James. I have to say the critics found lots not to like. The the American American critics are actively hostile. Cisco well, of course, they're Americans. Yeah, it's well. <laughs> <laughs> Even in the UK, they're lukewarm. I mean, the, the, the Times says it's a discreet mixture of all possible approaches, tastefully done, not unintelligent, eminently respectable, and for the most part, deadly dull. Um, what? We, yeah, no, I'm just, I'm, I just, <laughs> their words, not mine. Yeah. <laughs> I, they were also, I mean, the most thing I found oddest about going through the reviews is lots and lots of complaints about how long it is. It's two hours and 10 minutes, which to a sort of 2020, 2023 audience. That's not bad for That's, the 60s, though, is it? Yeah, no, well, it's, it's they were longer, they, you know, it's, it's shorter than longest the longest day. day. It's short, shorter than Lawrence of Arabia. It's shorter than, I think, any Marvel film in the last decade. I have to say, I sat through a preview of Killers of the Flower Moon last week, which is three and a half hours long and would have been significantly improved if there had been a... a, a fight between a Spitfire and a Messerschmitt at almost <laughs> any point in it. <laughs> very, very, very long film. But no, so it 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 does it does well in the UK, it does badly in um yeah. uh in, in America and they sort of eventually they make they make the money back on on home media. But at the time this is a a slightly a sort of an epic flop. Uh directed by Guy Hamilton, who had yep, done Bond the Cold Director. Bond, Bond director, coldest story director, goes on to direct Force 10 from Navarone, which we will do. He says to destroy the myth, his, his goal is to destroy the myth of the Battle of Britain, only to create a greater myth, because it's a fantastic story. I mean, that, James obviously feels that that's what he achieves. Do you, how do you feel? Uh, well, I, I just think it's really good. I think from the opening scene in, in France, I think that's really good. Um, and, and the two Messerschmitts coming, coming in low just as they're torching the hurricanes. Absolutely, uh, you know, I think that kind of draws your attention. Then you've got the huge inspection of the air fleet by by Goering on the other side of the channel. You know, I think that's all incredibly effective. You've got this sense of, you know, the Germans building up for the invasion, you know, which would never in a zillion years have worked, but that's neither here nor there. The point is, you know, it's a movie. You want a bit of... Bit of yeah, you've got to have a threat. Of it. <laughs> and, and you've got all these great actors from Michael Caine to, as I say, Christopher Plummer et al. And, and, and the setup is really good. I think the sort of the ticking clock and the sense that time's running out and, you know, we've got these terrific aircraft, but but production lines are kind of fighting furiously, but is there going to be enough? And also, I think it gets the mood pretty, pretty accurately. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of Battle of Britain veterans and, you know, this there, there, there was an absolutely a studied insouciance amongst pilots mm. where the whole point was to be laid back and try and look unruffled and imperturbable and lounge mm. around in your in your deck chair and and of course you know new new pilots coming in would see the kind of the flight lieutenant and the and the and the, and the squadron leader putting on this charade and would try and ape it so it just sort of perpetuates itself i mean that, that you know that kind of myth hasn't come from anywhere that that's come from because if you want to be kind of cool and respected in the RAF, that's how you act. And you have to remember that all these guys are incredibly young. So putting on an act is kind of part of part it, 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 of the whole the whole thing. And I think they get that that really well. I think they get the kind of the, the, the cockiness of the Luftwaffe fighter pilots, particularly, you know, which was absolutely existed. You know, they just mm. thought they were the mutts nuts and top dogs because everyone had just kind of sort of crumbled. Um, before them, and that's because they were dominating the the, the the battle narrative. And the reason they're dominating the battle narrative is because they're choosing when they attack, at, uh, at what targets, and in what strength. And until they come up against Great Britain, they've not come up against an air defence system. So yeah. 
If you're the defenders in France or Poland or Holland or wherever it might be, or Norway, and you're the Air Force Air, you have no alternative but to sort of take off and sort of bumble about the sky and hope you bump into the Luftwaffe. And, and that's obviously not a very effective way of, of, of defending your nation. Yeah. Whereas the difference about Britain is that you have got this air defence system. It's the first first that the world has ever known, and it's completely brilliant. I mean, it, it, the, the principles of it are still used to this day. They're completely aped by the Germans by by the middle of second half of 1943. I mean, absolutely to the letter, to the, the coordination of observer corps, radar, uh, um, control centres, radio, so that people on the ground can have this big picture view of what's going on and, and, and vector mm. direct aircraft onto other aircraft, anticipate where, where enemy aircraft are coming and all this kind of stuff. All this stuff is brand spanking new in 1940. No one's ever done it before. And it's a total game changer. Um, and I think all of that comes across in the, in the, in the Battle of Britain movie. And thrown in onto all this are, are these absolutely sensational aerial combat scenes, some of which go on for kind of, sort of 10, 12 minutes at a time. And they're brilliant. I don't think they've ever been bettered. Well, no, no, I think, I think they're absolutely fantastic. You know, I was reading about the filming of this and something I hadn't grasped. Yeah. You know, it's obviously all filmed over southern England. So there are people just, you know, g- going about their day. Then suddenly there's these aerial battles happening overhead during, during the filming. So you get these sort of crowds forming across southern England to watch the filming. And they are fantastic. Now, my, I think I'm not as enthusiastic about this film. Uh, as you are. Now, I, I can appreciate it. I think the aerial battle sequences are fantastic. And there's a reason that everyone's gone back and reused them because, you know, mm. you've got real Spitfires and Messerschmitts doing this and, you know, filmed from the end, filmed really well. Um, I, I, I worry that the film itself was too ambitious. You know, you look at The Longest Day, you know, it's about a day. Um, you know, the problem with the Battle of Britain is you're looking at a campaign over, what, six, seven weeks. You're trying to squeeze that. The problem is you've got two hours to play with. You're spending 40, 45 minutes of those two hours on some fantastic aerial combat scenes. You're then trying to pack a narrative of the entire campaign into an hour and 15 minutes and also make it, you know, a relatable human story by having these characters and their own sort of arcs happening at the same Mm. time. And I just worry too much is going on. I mean, I, going back to what James was saying, it, it hasn't been bettered. It, it's interesting, actually. I can't think of a good modern Battle of Britain film. They're, they're... Well, I can't think of a good one that has has air to air combat. Yeah. In it. I would, you know, Memphis Bell is pretty good. I gave that an, another airing recently, and actually, it really holds up. And that must have been. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. So I thought that was pretty good. But 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 you know, if you take Dunkirk by Christopher Nolan, it, it, yeah. it's you know the aerial sequences are, are risible. I, I mean, you know, but first of all, they're flying too low because they're not. He, he insists on not having CGI, which then shoots himself in the foot because he's then got a vic of three Spitfires. Well, you know, Spitfires weren't operating in, in formations of three in, in over Dunkirk. They're operating in formations of at least twelve. And they're operating at 25,000 feet. They're not operating at kind of, you know, zero mm. feet off the deck. Mm-hmm. But because he wants to use real things and you're not allowed to fly over, you know, that kind of stuff at over more than 10,000 because you might bump into a, you know, an right. easy jet, <laughs> you're then hindering yourself historically. And the whole point is, you know, what he tries to do, you know, he makes his massive plays. I don't use CGI and I just I use real stuff and it's all real and all the rest of it. But the, the net result is because of that, it's not very realistic, yeah. <laughs> even yeah, though but, they are actually real planes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and you know the, the the whole sequence is 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 ludicrous. The 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 the, the Spitfire and the drink is really good when it goes down into the water and the guy has to get out. That that's fantastically well done. But but 
also it's too glidey. So, you know, when you're in a Spitfire at that time, you're, you're, you're doing lots of... One of the things that's really good about the Battle of Britain film is it does feel quite frenetic. Yeah. You know, you, you can yes. see this sort of sense of melees and things all streaming all over the place. And, you know, you have all these formations. The formation goes to pot the moment, you know, someone opens fire. All of that is absolutely true. Whereas in Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan, you, you know, you've got Tom Hardy sort of serenely gliding in mm. behind and, and having a machine gun that sort of goes on for about four hours. When the, when the reality <laughs> is you're, 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 you've got 14.7 seconds worth of firing of machine gun bullets. And so yeah. it's, 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 a, it's a study in contrast, really. Yeah, but that's what. So, so it's it, it's odd that you can you can do anything, but you somehow actually you can't. You're, I, I think you're absolutely right that this is the best of the Battle of Britain films, certainly in terms of all of the air combat stuff. Because it's real aircraft and they're in the sky at the right height. Yeah, it's it's hit the exact sweet spot of the late 1960s when you've still got plenty of these planes about and serviceable, and you've got the technology to film them quite well. Mm. You know, before then, you didn't. You know, you wouldn't have had the same shot from the air kind of. um, You can't go up with cinema scope and and color cameras and all this kind of thing. Which which, and within and ten, fifteen years afterwards, there just aren't enough of these planes about. Let's go to the After Action Report. So, quick, Dad, they're on the cable car. Where do we where do we want to be called in? I mean, we've established the first answer to I want you to call me in is every aerial combat sequence. Yes. Any yes. any of them. Well, it sounds like Jim wants to be called in at the very beginning. Well, I, well, I was going to say, so so the first shot, the hurricane, literally the, the hurricane going over your head, my feeling is at that moment, I'm in. You've got me. Um, I mean, at that moment, also, I have to say, my entire family walked out. Uh, <laughs> the viewing of this was somewhat controversial in our. This is why you have to talk to me about this. This is why I have to talk to you about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I need my podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, if, if you, you either go, oh my goodness, a hurricane, and the, uh, the the naughty victory roll, and so on, and all of that, or uh, or it doesn't do it for you, uh, and you've got some. You've got your interesting issues of class. You've got your posh pilot, Edward Fox, born to play posh, posh, <laughs> posh toffs. Yep. And Could be nothing uh, else. Ian McShane. Uh, so I can't not think of him as Lovejoy. I mean, you know, but you, you couldn't have him having a massive mullet. <laughs> <laughs> but the, but that's I mean this is in Max Hastings' book about all the all the grammar school boys who in the 1930s joined the RAF because they were desperate to fly, and. Uh, and he, I guess, sort of sits in that. That that's that's yeah. what he stands for. Yep, yep. The sergeant pilot. So um, you've got this lovely, this sort of. I mean, this is a very long pre-title sequence. Oh yeah, yeah actually. Yeah. Um, you've got the moment, the, the sort of the the doubting uh, being challenged about the doubting memo. Yeah, that's precisely why I wrote it. Yes. <laughs> Do you know? Did you recognise the actor who was challenging him? No, go on. It's Harry Andrews, who is Tom from Ice Cold and Alex. Oh, which was our, that's that's the the last one we recorded. Of it was. So, um, as I say, hugely versatile yeah. actor can yeah. both be a um, a sergeant who can fix your ambulance, yeah. and yes. a senior man from the civil service who's appalled yeah. at your. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you realise I'm going to have to put this in front of the prime minister. Um, that's precisely why I wrote it. It's absolutely <laughs> brilliant. But they, but that is slightly. I, I feel like that moment is slightly a statement of intent about the film. That this is not going to be an adventure film in the sky. We're, this is a, we're going to tell you yes. the history of this, mm. or you know, yeah. the, the the sort of the Whitehall arguments that are going yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, having a, having a memo as a dramatic moment yeah. is a is a is an interesting yeah. thing. Is I I like this stuff. 
nothing more exciting to me than the Dowding system and all of that. And anyone anyone listening to this is uh, yeah. is going to be a huge fan. I wonder whether this is what this is, as it were, what the critics didn't like about it that it can't decide. Is it is it a drama documentary yeah. about this tense moment, or is it a um, if you were just making a straight adventure film, you'd sort of you'd you'd yeah, I mean, you did have all the sharp end, all about the fighter pilots, all about yeah, and the aerial yeah. combat scenes. Um, did we get the Dunkirk beach? Do you know which beach they filmed the Dunkirk beach at? I don't. Right, this is this is interesting. It's the it's it, they filmed him in Spain at Huelva, which is a famous wartime beach. Oh, is this <laughs> where the body landed? This is from, where the yes. body landed. <laughs> this is so where the body of Operation Mystery I never knew that. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and then we get, and I, I've got to say, I'll also, this is a moment where my heart soars in the film. They, the the newsreader sort of says, you know, quoting Churchill, "The Battle of Britain is about to begin," yeah. and literally the next thing that happens is it flashes up the title, "The Battle of Britain." Yes, you know. <laughs> I sort of is this the only battle in history that is named before it begins? I can't think of another one. <laughs> it's a sort of just a slightly interesting sort of way round to do it. But yes, um, I, I don't know. I've never thought of that. That's a really good point. Um probably. I mean that that's Churchill's gift with um Yeah, he's not bad at the old rhetoric, yeah. was he? I mean you don't see Nelson kind of going in on the morning of the twenty first of October going, I think we'll call this <laughs> 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 Do you? I mean, no, <laughs> no, naming usually comes afterwards, and it's, yes. and it's and it's the right of the victor. So, 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 is, is Wellington decides it's going to be called Waterloo, doesn't he? Yeah, because it's it's where he stayed the night before, isn't it? I mean, the, the, the battle's I'm, I'm, not actually fought at Waterloo. I mean, <laughs> Battle of Hastings wasn't fought at Hastings. No, it's fought at Battle, obviously. Mm, yes, which I mean, that was conv- <laughs> yeah. maybe that was maybe that's the other example. <laughs> so, what's it, what's this place called? It's called Battle. Well, we have to... <laughs> yeah, we can't have that because you can't have the Battle of Battle. That would just be wrong. <laughs> so we normally we have got, we, we, we're slightly going to sort of. It moves slightly out of sequence. We have a couple of categories we normally do, which is uh, the stiffest upper lip. Uh, but when we have the, this confrontation in Geneva between the ambassadors, the, I realised that the British ambassador is not exactly a stiff upper lip. It's more that I, I, I'm going to pronounce this wrong. It's, it's sort of the songest foie. It's yeah. the, the moment where the the German, who is obviously supposed to be Ribbent, Ribbentrop, who... Yeah. Um, says, you know, we will flatten London. Yeah. And then the British ambassador looks up and says, it, it's two lumps you take, isn't it? <laughs> it's just a sort of... <laughs> yes, the other bit where he does is really good. He goes, it's unforgivable. I lost my temper. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here again, I mean, this is one of our themes, is the sort of, is, is, is our myth-making. And there is some very distinct kind of, um, this is... The aftermath of war. This, this is this is what we're this is this is how we're telling ourselves that we handled this. Yes. Um, incredible importance of tea in this film as well. <laughs> uh, there are I, there are I think I count I started counting them. Um, there's four or five scenes where where tea is significant. There's there's either or, or tea is being yeah. poured out, and you just feel like oh right there's a there's a bit towards the end where they're watching. The fight from the roof yeah. of, of Whitehall, and some, and the first shot you get is an elderly chap walking up with a teapot, and you think, right? Whereas, whereas we get the German pilots boozing. Yes, that's <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> as a... Well, there is a very, and also I love the fact that you know all the, all the Brits are sort of sitting there wearing their blue suits <laughs> and ties, whereas the Germans are all wearing a sort of incredible array of sort of. Natty breeches, leather boots, mm. sort of, you know, cool navy blue jackets, leather jackets, 
whole range of stuff. And and you know, and I've got photos of of fighter pilots from 1940, and the Germans are absolutely like that. I mean, there's a photo I've got of I, th- I think sort of one of one of the fighter groups based on an airfield near Calais, and with nine pilots, there's something like eight different uniforms they're all wearing. You know, <laughs> they, they look unbelievably cool and snappy. Mm. And then there's a photo of Number One Squadron in their blue suits, and two of them are wearing slippers. <laughs> and this is my point about the studied insouciance. They just, you know, that it, it, it is yeah. absolutely the reality. That it, that is, and it is studied, but yeah. but it is part of it. That, that kind of sort of absolutely wouldn't dream of trying to look ruffled by anything. You know, that that's incredibly important, and, and kind I, of being laid back and kind of sort of you know. You know, and that's that's the whole point about sort of you know going for a Burton and having a wizard prang and all this kind of stuff. It's all about mm. downplaying it because the the moment you start to think about what you're doing, you you, you start to go mad. So you it's a, it's a massive defense mechanism, of course. But you, but I do think they get that they get that contrast yeah. very nicely in the in the movie. And and you do get that sense with with Fox and McShane, who are the two junior pilots that you see the most of. That when they're when they're lounging in their deck chairs and they're doing all of the sort, the the teasing slash bullying of the new pilots. You know when he sort of walks away and they'll go daka 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 daka. That is a little bit. I I, I think it, it you feel that that this is that this is this is them pretending. Um, yeah. to to, yeah. to be to, to pretending to the to themselves and each other yeah. that they're not bothered. It really does does convey what the that the, they're not quite into. They they do sort of know what's going on. And, and, and even the new boy who's sort of a bit bouncy and and kind of doing yeah. things wrong. Yeah. You know, when he's told off, he sort of goes, "Oh, sorry," you know, or "Oh, yes, no, I shouldn't do that, should I?" Yeah. Um, and you know, and again, it's it's all part of that. And I, I, I honestly, I really think it was like that. I, I, yeah. I think that's actually incredibly accurate. And I think one of the reasons they get that across is because they've got all these advisors like Tom Gleave and you know um, Max Beaverbrook advising them on the film, and and you know. That's how they were. Now we also another another once once only category. We we normally have Nazis Nazi, which we'll get to later. But I <laughs> I, I feel that the trouble is slightly. We know who's going to win that. <laughs> <laughs> um, most heuristic hunts, um, because that's the other thing about the sort of the first yeah. half hour of the film is it's just a fighter pilot coming out of his yeah. yellow car, isn't it? And sort of yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, so, sort of just got a shot down. You know. We, we, you get you get the immediate contrast of sort of Michael Caine, yeah. you know, waiting for his lost pilot who's yeah. gone off, um, who indeed has gone off being cocky, doing something he shouldn't have done, and then we get this shot yeah, of yeah. him lying in the in the channel, drowned, and yeah. and yep. immediately we get the man who has obviously shot him down, yeah. you know, uh, smoking a cigar and yeah. very full of himself, literally jumping out. I mean, you know, and he literally mm. couldn't be cockier, more pleased with himself. More kind of convinced that they're this is just another in the kind of long list of people that the Luftwaffe are going to smite, and and there is and all of that sequence, and then they're sort of driving to their briefing and so on. There's an awful lot of sort of the might of Germany. Yeah. You've got the 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 great. I mean, this is there's a, they clearly only had three barges because <laughs> because they they filmed those barges from yeah. a number of different angles going past. Yeah. <laughs> you're not you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to. Yeah, yeah, but Rob, they literally only had three barges. I mean, that, <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that was half the problem. I, well, there is a so one of the things that the, the, the British in this keep saying is why are they waiting? I can't understand why they're yeah. waiting. And actually, the, the, I, I can't believe that they were that surprised because Germany has no plan to invade. 
Britain. And well, also, and it takes a huge amount of time to move a, to move a, a whole air force from from Germany to Northern France. Yeah. You've got to you've got to get them there. Then you've got to get all the ground crew there. You've got to get your supply chains there. You've got to get fuel there. You've then got to build a whole load of airfields which don't exist because. The only way they're going to work is if the fighters are as close to Britain as they possibly mm. can. So that means turning turning Calais into a kind of a, a, a sort of density of, of fighter airfields. Then you've also got to bring in anti-aircraft devices because actually the RF Bomber Command are coming over and pasting them and literally every single day as well. So that's got to be brought up. And it all takes time. It's not something you can just click your fingers and it happens. Yeah, they, they, they've got bombers moving from Cherbourg and that kind of thing. And actually these if you spend your summers driving across France, actually the, the distances are quite large. <laughs> you know, even even now, even yeah. on modern roads, it, it, yeah. there's just a yeah, just a exactly lot of that. stuff to move. And and in fact, as why why did the Allies not invade Normandy in 1942 or 1943? Planning a cross-channel invasion is quite yeah. quite complicated, um, and you know involves quite a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I I think I, James will know more than me, but I have the impression that the British would have been quite happy for the Germans to have a go. They, they would have had a hope. I mean, not a yeah, hope. It was it was yeah. like the worst plan. There was no joint planning team or anything like that. So the Navy were doing their thing, Army doing their thing, Air Force doing another. None of them were talking. There was no joined up thinking whatsoever, and they just didn't have any landing craft. So they were using Rhine river barges. But only one and three were motorized, so the plan was to kind of put one lot in in a in a in a motorized one and tow the other two across. I mean, can you imagine? And the bottom line is is the RAF Fighter Command is the first line of defense, not the last. And, and you know, second line of defense is very much the Navy, which is the world's largest in 1940 by some yeah. margin. Um, yeah. And the third line of defense is the Army, and the fourth line of defense is the Home Guard, which were all the kind of, you know, laughter about Captain Mannering and Wormington and Wormington on Sea and all the rest of it. it was actually a pretty, you know, would have been quite effective. So the idea, they also had 13 bomber squadrons put aside for for, for releasing chemical weapons and, and, and so on on an invasion fleet. It had zero chance of success. And if you think about the kind of huge jeopardy there is for D-Day, when you've got total control of the airspace over literally all of Northwest Europe, and you've won the intelligence battle, and you've got overwhelming naval forces, and you've got 11,500 aircraft, and there's still quite a lot of jeopardy for it, you can see just how far off the mark any German invasion plan in Operation Sea Lion was. But that's not the point. No. (laughs) (laughs) It felt sort of... It must have... It must have... I mean... Psychologically, after Dunk- Dunkirk is bad, you know. It, I mean, well, yeah. the, the loss of France is really bad because no one's expecting it. You know, France is, you know, by today's parlance, a, a superpower has a, has a larger army than the Germans, has more artillery than the Germans, more tanks, bigger tanks. It's just not supposed to happen. Yeah. And so there is the, the, there is the the strategic earthquake is not the Low Country so much, but the defeat in France in six weeks. That's just you know it took four years, and they didn't. You know, and, they, and the Germans lost the previous one, and here they've just rolled them over in six weeks, and the British have been involved. So it's it's the shock of that more than the evacuation per se that is that is the yeah. issue, and yeah. it, and it's absolutely colouring people. You know, people are having sort of rabbit in headlights moment because they just they're sort of thinking, Ugh, you know, if, if if we got this wrong, you know, we're expecting we're expecting kind of parachutists any minute, sort of yeah. dropping yeah. over Kent or something. Without yeah, actually it, pausing to think, well, how are they going to do this? Yeah. You know, how, how practically, how does that happen? 
And people are just losing their heads, and they absolutely are. And then suddenly, sort of calm, sort of gradually returns as nothing happens. And the reason nothing happens is because a Hitler is waiting for the for the for the British to sue for peace because he thinks they've lost their army. Therefore, because he, he his worldview is is you know he assumes that everyone else is thinking through the same narrow prism that yeah. he's thinking. And for him, being a continentalist and a landlubber, the army is the kind of absolute number one thing. But of course, the the clue is in the nickname of the navy, which is senior service and and you know we're an island nation and a, a and a seafaring empire and, and so it's a completely different way of, of of approach to war and and what's the most serious crisis and it's obviously it's, it's it's not a small incident to to have to leave most of your guns and armor on on the, on the shores of dunkirk it's a, it's a massive humiliation and it's a it's a defeat but britain is far from being crushed at the beginning of June, and as sort of heads start to sort of calm, and 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 people mm. start to sort of go, and and also as Churchill starts to grip the situation with those incredible speeches, of which you know sixty five percent of the nation are listening to, and when that also includes <laughs> children, that's quite a lot. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you, you can start to see why everyone starts to sort of calm down a little bit, and also there is the freedom of being released from your alliance with France, where France's politics are so fractious in the nineteen thirties, it's very hard to make a decision because they've got these, you know, it's not a two-party coalition it's like a eight-party coalition and they're constantly changing i think they have 13 different governments in the 1930s so so that stifles cohesive military thinking and 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 britain because britain has such a small army is playing very much second fiddle to the french army in france so once once the sort of the shock of defeat in france is kind of settled there is a huge advantage to being able to you suddenly think, well, actually, we've got this huge navy and we've got a burgeoning air power and we've got the world's only air defence system and actually we don't have the French to worry about anymore, so our decision-making is much cleaner, which means it's more efficient and more effective and all the rest of it. And there's actually quite a lot in Britain's favour. But, of course, Hitler doesn't realise that. Um, and also, because he hasn't prepared for a strategic air battle, which is what the Battle of Britain is, and what I mean by that is where an air force is operating on its own without any ground mm. troops or anything like that or, or the navy... It's not prepared for that, and so it's got to kind of start from scratch and come up with a plan for which it's just simply not equipped. So everything is stacked against Germany, and everything is in Britain's favour. But again, if you're if you're sitting in Kent and you've just lost in you know the army's just come back from Dunkirk, and you're seeing the you know the amount of times I've sort of spoken to veterans back in the day or, or people civilians who were saying, "Well, I looked up and the sky was black with swastikas," and you're thinking, "Okay, first of all, they're coming at eighty thousand feet. Secondly, the biggest formation <laughs> you're going to see is in total about three hundred. That includes sort of two hundred fighter planes. Three, you wouldn't have been able to see any swastikas whatsoever by then. But that's not the point. That it's an impression, isn't it? And in yeah. their memory, that's lodged, and that's a very powerful thing because no one's ever seen anything that size before. What's to come is three and a half thousand bombers, four engine bombers destroying Hamburg in July nineteen forty three. But in nineteen forty, we're not. This, this is not a podcast. We're not discussing any other bombing. The only bombing we're no, discussing no. is a German but, bombing but, of Britain. But, <laughs> that's my point. But my point yeah. is, so you get this distorted effect yeah. of just how powerful Germany is in nineteen forty because it's all new and no one's ever seen this before. But actually, they're not. It's it's conveyed incredibly well in the film. The, the, the sort of the older tag, uh, the, all of that. The, one of the things the film does really well is we're going to fly hundreds of planes over yeah, over, yeah. over yeah. you, and yep. uh, and that that feels that that feels incredibly good. I mean, there's there's, there's, there's two lots of that. There's the older tag one, then later on there's the one where Goering sort of standing there with his yeah. hands over his ears yes. as uh, they're all going to go and bomb London. Yeah. Yes. Um, and being a bit it, like Commodus, yes. in the Gladiator. 
<laughs> and yeah, no, it, 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 all of those scenes convey the sort of the 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 scale of the, the scale of the defensive problem, and you, you've got to. I think I think for the film, you've got to have a sense of peril and threat. You, it's yeah, sort of, of course. You, yeah, you, so and, you it, and, it's, have... and but it's very re- it is absolutely it's, and it, felt. And it was felt yeah. in yes. 1940. I mean, it's, it's all very well for sort of wise, you know, wise after the event historians like myself to sort of go, well, actually, you know, there was never going to be an invasion, and if they tried, they'd have become a cropper, and actually, all the all the aces with Britain, you know, th- that's my point about about the civilian looking hmm. at the formations coming over in Kent. You know, try being there at the time; it's a completely different kettle of fish. It's, I think uh, they convey that very well. Yeah. Uh, skipping on slightly. One of the interesting scenes is Hitler's speech, and there is this problem of putting Hitler on film. Yes, um, in yes. a serious film, which is basically that he sort of looks ridiculous. And uh, uh, by the way, the, the, the nasty is Nazi. Um, <laughs> any any film that features Hitler, he yeah. is going to win yeah. the nasty is Nazi. <laughs> but he but he's not in a lot of them. Yeah, because well, he's not in this, as I remember. I don't well, he didn't. He, he has a speech. He has a speech um, after the bombing of of, uh, of Berlin. They ha- they have this thing where they they film the speech from behind and from a distance, and you never see his face. Oh yes, I've forgotten that. You you see his you see him gesturing, and it's 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 a really interesting. He he can't be funny. Yes, because he's announcing that they're going to bomb London, and he's. At this point, he's sort of evil incarnate, yeah. and and so you sort of do it, you you do it without showing him, yeah. in so while showing him simultaneously. I, I think that that's sort of dramatically one of the most interesting sort of choices because they must have thought, shall we, you know, shall we get shall we get Bob to play Hitler? And, yeah, um, <laughs> and uh, thought, <laughs> you can't you can't do it. People yeah. people will just laugh. And actually, what you said, you showed the sort of the fascist hordes, all these women, yeah. furiously Zeke Heiling in yeah. a sort of this yes. is this is what we're up against, and all we've got is uh, is is Uncle Bert with his teapot, yes, yes. And, and a pair of binoculars. Yeah. Keeping on with with scenes, you want to come back to Ian McShane's visit home? Yes. Now, is this? It's, it, I think, in a way, this is the sort of the emotional heart of the film. I mean, I know it's all, it's all on the ground, but there's all sorts of sort of oddities about this because you have a version of the the longest day thing where you sort of you don't you don't really know what people were doing before, and you never yeah. find out what happened to them afterwards, and so you just get this sort of vignette, and it's a it's a longer vignette than you would normally get. Yeah. But this is the one bit where you see what the bombs are doing. Yes, and I I can see exactly why it's in there from a sort of scripting point of view and exactly what the directors are trying to achieve. Um, I'm not quite sure it works, though. Oh, gosh, you're a hard man. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I agree with you. I don't think it quite works either. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's that's my one bit where I don't think it does because he doesn't seem terribly upset. (laughs) You know, he's just lost his wife and kids and, and, you know, and and sort of after a night at Robert Shaw's house, he's kind of okay. And and you sort of think... Okay, I think I think you might need a little bit more time to get over it. That well, that is that is. I think I think again, you're starting to get to why why the critics aren't sure about it. If you see what I mean, because because it, it works. See, what, I, what I'd really yeah. like to know um, is, you know, the film is just over two hours long. What is two hours ten minutes or something? Two hours ten minutes. Two hours yeah. ten minutes. I mean, I presume I presume the initial screenplay 
was longer because what really struck me and it's never you know, when I rewatched it to, to talk about it today it you know hadn't hit me the last time I'd seen it there are there are some bits which just feel like cuts have been made and that's left them that make so you know, when um plumber is injured and we've right. got the well, scene right well let's of, move on to yeah. she's not so dumb let's talk about women in this film yeah right what the hell is going on in Susanna York's marriage <laughs> no. right it's because plumber and he's being too busy being a fighter pilot <laughs> yeah, 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 but she's stupid to be. I mean, is it, this is such a miserable. You know, he wants her to stop being a waff or to yeah. to come up to Scotland, and uh, and so he's he's a complete. For most of the film, I sit there thinking, mate, you're married to Susanna York. Just do, just 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 <laughs> just, just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do do whatever. But, um, and then in her final scene, yeah. you know, she discovers that he's not going to, you know, he's not going to look like look Mr. like Christopher Plummer, Plummer anymore. anymore. And uh, and and she's suddenly sitting there thinking, oh well, do I want to be married to him? We and you think, oh maybe maybe never... you two deserve each other. You know, I mean, but... I hope that if I bailed out of a flaming spitfire. <laughs> My wife would be more happy that I had I landed. I think you're being a bit harsh. I think you're being a bit harsh on that one. They have one spat where they go and they meet up in a pub. They haven't seen each other for a while. She's busy. He's busy. They meet up. They have a bit of spat because he quite understandably doesn't want her to 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 be. A, he he wants her to come with come yeah. with him when he gets posted to Scotland. It seems to be an entirely reasonable cause for an argument. And um, they don't quite resolve it. He drives off. Next thing he knows, he gets burnt in his Spitfire. And, and you know, they can do wonders in the Second World War with um, thanks to Mackindo Mac- and everything. Um, so maybe it'll all be okay. But it's just, a, you know, it's, it's the stresses and strains of war on a, on, a, yeah. on a young marriage, I think. I think that's okay. I wondered if initially the filmmakers intended to come back to them. And this, but this was an easy cut because it, ju- it just felt odd like you were left. Any- maybe just me. Yeah, you may well be right. The, the mm. officer, by the way, with the burned face, the actor with the burned face, was a was a genuine. Yes, he was. Um, his, his name has now gone hey. from my head, but he he had he had been yeah. burned in exactly that way. Um, yep, exactly. Uh, that. And and he was he was so he was a he was he was a guinea pig, yeah. as they were called. But um, the casualty list. Um, I there is a there, there is no movie count that I also if you Google Battle of Britain body count you, you it's quite hard. <laughs> no one so far as I can tell has sat down and worked out how many people we see die on screen. You didn't and sit it's, with your clicker. It's quite com- quite complicated. Uh, you know, well, it's when they bomb London. Yeah. <laughs> so what what are you doing? The, the sort of um, I can tell you that that um, about uh, four thousand pilots were killed on both sides um, and uh, twenty three thousand civilians. So, which, I mean, actually, when you look at it that way, you don't get, you get, you get a sense of what's going on on the ground, but the focus yeah. is mainly on, on, yeah. on what's happening in the air. But, um, but I, I, I mean, I also think, to be honest, if you just, if you just had the final air combat sequence where they're playing, uh, Walton's sort of, they don't actually, they don't even bother with any sound except for. Yeah. The, the, yes. The, well, he's originally, he's originally called in to do the whole, the whole score and they don't like it enough. So they then get in Ron Goodwin, who's sort of fresh from the success of Where He Goes There, um, and the and the I, I've got to say I do think the final bit, mm. um, the final Rod Ron Goodwin score rather than the William Walton one, is really terrific, and the bit with Dowding going out onto the balcony at um, Bentley Priory is it, just is is absolutely fantastic. It's it's incredibly good and powerful and all the rest of it. I, I thought I, it's it's a I think it's a really good end. I really yeah, like and list, listing all of the pilot, all of the nationalities yes, yes. as well. Uh, Cooler King Award for the most gratuitous American character. There are no Americans 
No Americans in this I film. I rest my one. case. So no wonder that's, the American critics. That's didn't why like they it. didn't like it. That's uh, <laughs> they yeah. don't even know that this happened. <laughs> <laughs> what war was this? Um, people in a tiny part who went on to be a legend. Well, Ian McShane. Ian McShane. Ian McShane. Well, also Maureen Lipman. Yes. Did you, you, no, you would I not have also a guy, There's also a guy who comes in with a cup of tea who later is in Coronation Street. Uh, I, that's at my level, you see. That's uh, <laughs> that's the kind of person I pick. Duncan, Duncan yeah, Rob, Rob always Rob always says he went on to be a big star and then it's always someone who was a relatively minor character in a 1980s TV series. <laughs> you know, so Lovejoy is like a step up. Yeah, 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 but yeah. we had Adrian Mole's dad at one point. <laughs> yeah, that's very good. Maureen, Maureen Lippman is the chain home uh, woman who um, uh, is yeah. saying, I, I, I think she's the one who's saying, I can't tell if it's, I, I, or it, 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 I can't, I'm not know? getting any friend, friend or foe. No, well, I, to be honest, I only read that afterwards. I mm. failed to recognise at the time. He's bought it, Sarge, to best death. Um, well, I've got McShane's family. <laughs> That's a, uh, it's like getting covered one. in ketchup's quite good. Yeah, well, yeah. I was going to say any of the Heinkel pilots sort of getting getting shot yeah. up, yeah, or oh, the, the 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 Heinkel yeah, sort yeah. of gunners bombardiers. I mean, Michael Caine. The one thing I really do like about Spitfires in the Dunkirk movie is that Michael Caine is flying one of them. Yes, um, <laughs> and the way that he dies in that is just he stops answering the radio. Yeah. And you're like, oh, right. <laughs> well, I, some, yeah. some, something's gone wrong. Yeah. And which is slightly how he died. I think we I think we do see this time I thought, oh, that's his that's supposed to be his fifth yeah. Spitfire that's blowing up. But I think on the whole, I had previously thought that in the Battle of Britain, at some point, Michael Caine just stops appearing. Yeah. And that's mm. that's sort of yeah. how you know he's doing another movie somewhere. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> but I think yeah, it's a weird one. I it, 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 given the subject, how few sort of great deaths there are. I suppose... Yeah. There's nothing, nothing too dramatic, is there? You get the amazing sequence of... of, of I know he doesn't get killed, but where he's burned. Plumber, plumber and being stuck yeah, in the kind of just in, uh, Yeah, and his eyes wide and his hands on fire. Yeah. It's really weird. No, but that, if, 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 if he died... That would that oh, would win it <laughs> because yeah. you do completely the ho- absolute horror of being stuck in this space yeah. when it's on fire. Yeah. Which actually is again with with Dunkirk, you get the oh my goodness, you're drowning, you're drowning, and you can't. Yeah, I mean, that's true. That, that, that is really that's my favourite scene in the whole movie. Pro- proper yeah. stuff of nightmares. Yeah. That stuff, yeah. you know. Best meme. Um, don't you yell at me, Mister Warwick. Yeah, I like. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, did, I like. I like that one. I still. Uh, like, I love the line of one of the one of the ground crew when Robert Shaw's got cross about something. Robert Shaw storms out of. He's supposed to be sailor Milan, so he's got his he's got his sort of white naval submariner's mm. jumper on. He storms off, and one of the crews, one of the ground crew, goes, "Skipper hates Jerry's." <laughs> and that's that's my favourite line in the whole film. Um, home and tea. There is actually a moment yeah. after after um, uh, Plummer's squadron have uh, shot up all the the Heinkels in the northeast. They actually say home and tea. Yeah. <laughs> and you've earned you're it. Right. This time. I, I, hadn't, I never picked up on the tea emphasis, but you're absolutely right. Now you think about it, I'm, I'm never going to be able to watch it again without. <laughs> Should just have a clicker for, for, oh, for heading for the kettle. Appearances of cups of tea. There's, there's tea being handed out. There's yeah. all the way. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's a. Um, there's a great. Um, actually, the one I the one I really want is uh, it, it's in the the sort of the makeshift sort of chain home station intermediate station yeah. where somebody says tin hats everyone and they all put on yeah. their tin hats and then the, the ceiling falls in. I think that'd be a great gift. Yeah, I think that'd, yeah. That'd, yeah that's a great perfect. line. That is a great <laughs> line. <laughs> Stiffest upper lip. 
Well, we don't, well we've is, covered the ambassador. Yeah, we, we, we don't believe McShane. Um, yeah. Not Susanna York, obviously. Michael Caine's dog is the only other one. He sort of looks looks a bit upset yeah. <laughs> learning that someone I else think Christopher is... Christopher Palmer's yeah. got a pretty stiff upper lip at the beginning of in the Battle for France. Yes, fair, that's true. They've got to run out and they're running out of time and he gets a chap to come and he, he says we need to get yes. out now. That's... Yeah, there's actually this, there's a little moment there again that, that you never see anything else of, where the pilot beckons to the French pilot to come and sort of, I'll you can I'll sit in your lap or something, and yeah. just sort of, yeah. And I, again, I feel like if you're doing they that now, off. yeah, you, yeah. You, you 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 see those guys again at some point. Yeah. But Dan Buster's dog prize for the most problematic moment. <laughs> I just think I, don't, I couldn't think of anything. No, it's just but no, it's just fine, fine. No, it's, pleasingly it's a wholesome. Of, it's it's a, it's, it's the lack of humanity in Ian McShane when his family gets killed. <laughs> <laughs> he literally goes like this and, and, and sort of shrugs. And, I mean, there's no breakdown. There's no, he's no. just like, yeah. oh, they've been no. killed. Oh, that's a bit of a downer, isn't it? Okay, well, I better go and shack up with Robert Shaw then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Broadsword Radio for completely implausible moments. I mean, you can get into an argument about the fact that they mainly have Spitfires and it was actually mainly a Hurricanes... War, uh, well, not against, not that. against the, yeah. um, not against the fighters. The fighters, it was oh, mainly right. Spitfires versus Messerschmitts. The the big problem is really is the fact that the Messerschmitts are all Bouchons, which are post-war Messerschmitts rather than pre-war Messerschmitts. And the big difference is that the post-war Spanish-built Messerschmitt 109 is equipped with a with a Merlin Rolls-Royce engine, as opposed to a Daimler Benz. And it's quite so a they, big. They difference. sound different. They sound different. They look different. So so that's the that's the big problem. But on the other hand, there's lots of them, so that's... Yeah, yeah. I think we can forgive that. Yeah. <laughs> Judgment at Nuremberg. How many war crimes are committed here? We, we, we every time... Unless, we... unless you want to get sidetracked uh, into a debate on the ethics of bombing, I suggest we Civilian, civilian bombing. I don't <laughs> think that there are any... No, I mean, there's, 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 no, there's no war crimes. Yeah. It's pretty historically faithful. I mean, yeah. I, within take, the yeah. limits... Yeah, within the limits of film. And actually, the, 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 it sort of... That's almost a criticism is... Is the, all of, all of the stuff that I like, where yeah. we, you know, let's let's go to the underground bunker again and look at all the all the all the stuff is yeah. is is the stuff that that I suspect the critics didn't like. I defer to our guest, but you know, for me, the big the the big inaccuracy was sort of the end. Yes, I mean, you know, the, the Battle of Britain sort of winds down rather than just well, one day they wake up and it's over. It's over. Yeah, it feels. Well, there's a bit of that going on. I mean, yeah. you know, it's autumn and, and there's sort of, you know, you're suddenly having days where you're not being called upon, whereas you are all at duty. I, yeah. Actually, I don't think that's really the problem. I, I think there's nothing that's exactly wrong about it. It's just it's just not quite conveying. Yeah. It's, 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 it's perpetuating a myth rather than a, than a reality, I think. James, is this the operation that changed the course of World War II? <laughs> yes. I don't think we've had a no, yes no, before, no, no, have we? No. <laughs> yeah, no, no, definitely, very, very definitely, because the whole point is, is that Hitler's preparing to go into into Soviet Union, sort of 43, 1944. The reason he goes in early with such catastrophic results is because he's still got the West to deal with. He's, Britain has still got skin in the game. Hovering around in the background is America and its huge industrial might and all the rest of it. And he knows he's got to get on with things. And he needs the resources that the Soviet Union could offer him to enable him to then turn back and deal with deal with Britain. So losing the Battle of Britain is an absolute catastrophe for Hitler because it forces his hand. He's got by the spring of 1941, he's got two choices: one, either to kind of bug out and sue for peace, or 
invade the Soviet Union. And he's obviously not going to do the former because he's Hitler. So he goes and invades the, the Soviet Union with catastrophic results. And by the autumn of 1941, the Germans have reached a point where they're simply never going to win the war. They just can't possibly. So, yes, it's absolutely a turning point. Brilliant. And worth dying for. Now, James James, James, <laughs> James thinks yes, this film. Um, Duncan, you're... No, it's a good film. I'm glad I watched it again. But... I'm afraid it's not within you know it's it's not one of my favorite so, so, films so you, of the ones we've done. Out of, out of ten, and you're not allowed to say seven because everyone always says seven. <laughs> if you if you take out seven, it forces your hand. Say, if I'm not allowed to say seven, I'm going to say six. Okay, that, that's your true colours. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'm definitely going to go eight. I, I think I'm I think I'm with you. I, there there are films. You know, when we do Ice Cold and Alex, and my children won't watch it, I think you're really missing out on yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a I, nine. Yeah, <laughs> I when when we did, I mean, I've watched this twice in the last month, and I actually enjoyed it more the second time. I enjoyed it the first time. I enjoyed it more the second time. But I can I can understand why people don't like it, even though I would say actually, I don't think anyone's ever done it better. Yes, and that sh- sort of shows. That there's not all close. sorts of stuff, not close. So, sort of stuff about this that's difficult, and oh, if, if, I mean, you know, everything from the fact that, that that when you're showing them in their cockpits, they've got their masks and their goggles yeah. on, you can't tell who's who, and it's actually very difficult to do aerial combat yeah. on film because it's quite hard to sort of see yeah. what what's going on, and actually, the fact that they do it so well and everyone else does it so badly, sort of. Well, okay, let's put yeah. this into some yeah. perspective. This is 30 years after the Dawn Patrol with Errol Flynn, Basil Rathbone and David Niven, which is still a completely brilliant film. But look at the aerial footage in Battle of Britain compared to that of the Dawn Patrol and you realise how far they've come. I mean, it's, 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 it's an incredible film for air-to-air combat. I, I just Honestly, I just don't think it's ever been bettered. Well, that was A Battle of Britain. I'm off back to uh, sit at my dispersal area and read the mirror. Thank you so much for joining us, James Holland. Thanks, as ever, Duncan Weldon, and uh, we'll see you soon. Cheerio. A Pod Too Far was written and presented by Robert Hutton and Duncan Weldon. Audio production and sound design by Simon Williams. Artwork by James Parrott. Lead producer is Anne-Marie Love. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. A Pod Too Far is a Podmasters production.